0: Lord, I pray that um, this would just be like another meal for us, for our souls as we uh, sit here and hear your word taught, that it would just remind us of things maybe we already know, uh, but can appreciate uh, as we are often forgetful and uh, just look to you. Uh, Lord, we are desperate to become conformed to the image of your son. And I pray that uh, this would just be a small part of that in our lives today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want you to imagine with me this morning that after you get home from church, sitting down for lunch, and all of the sudden, the doorbell rings. You're like, okay, got to go answer the door. And you open the door, and there's this guy standing in front of you. He looks like he's trying to sell you something. I'm sure you can imagine the kind of person that's standing in front of you. He looks, He's got a clipboard and a pen. He's a little fidgety, and he tells you, Hey, congrats, you have been randomly selected to receive these uh, paychecks for life. Uh, how many of you guys have ever seen that commercial, the paychecks for life? $5,000 is going to be added to your account every single week until the day you die and the whole time that he's like giving you this spiel he's like looking over his shoulder he's like really fidgety you ask him questions and he's not able to give you any credible answers Uh, you don't even remember signing up for this thing but all he needs from you is your routing number and account number and if you give that to him he promises the first installment is going to be made to you within like the hour right raise your hand if you're giving this guy your routing and account number yeah, nobody. <laughs> uh, in, in that instance, like, both the person and the, pr- exactly, <laughs> both the person and the promise is like, too good to true. you. I don't know you. I didn't sign up for this. Uh, I'm good. It sounds awesome, but I'm afraid of you cleaning me out. How about maybe we change the situation just a little bit. You receive a phone call from an elderly loved one who tells you that they have made you the beneficiary of their will and you think ah there's probably people that are more deserving of this but okay how, how much more inclined are you to believe that promise this is someone you know you trust you've had a relationship with for years and years and years and years and they say hey so and so i have chosen to make you the primary beneficiary of my will i think we'd be a little bit more inclined to believe something like that right there's a relationship there It doesn't require anything of us. And I think that illustrates well a couple of promises that take place in the scriptures. The first is called a conditional promise. There are these expectations or requirements that each member must uphold. So that kind of reflects the story that I told in the first example. Here's this guy standing at your door. He needs your routing and account number. You give him, or he gives you, excuse me, $5,000 a week. There's this exchange, there's conditions that each of you must uh, uphold according to this promise. And then there's the second, which is unconditional. You can see there, it is a one-sided promise, no requirements from the other party, much like someone calling you and saying, hey, you haven't done anything really to deserve this. You don't have to do anything. I have just chosen to make you a beneficiary in my will. Let me ask you this. What if God makes a promise? You think he'll keep it? Yeah, what about these two promises here? What if God makes a promise with mankind, a conditional promise in which man has obligations and God has obligations? Who is likely in that relationship to not fulfill the requirements? Man. Yeah, and the promises of God, we hold tightly to in the scriptures. Uh, Ones like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Romans 8, talking about all things working together for good. But when we talk about the promises of God, particularly in the Old Testament, scholars call them covenants. I'm sure you've heard that word before, right? The covenants in the Old Testament And there's a way of looking at the scriptures. Let me catch up here. Through the covenants of the Old Testament, which advance this redemptive narrative. We might say that they drive the plot of the Old Testament as God continually makes promises that are conditional or unconditional all towards the climax of the story, which is Jesus. So we get introduced to a covenant pretty early on in the scriptures. Right after the fall, God makes an unconditional promise to Adam and Eve. You can almost imagine in your mind's eye, Adam and Eve have just sinned. They're kind of lined up with the serpent, the woman, and Adam kind of standing like shamefully before God as he's like rattling off all of these curses to them. Serpent, you're going to crawl on your stomach and eat dust. Woman, you are going to have increased pain in childbearing. Man, you are going to be plagued by the earth. It is going to require a lot of exertion for you just to eat. You say, well, (laughs) that's pretty depressing, these promises you're making, right? Like, talk about a bad day. That's an understatement. And yet, nestled into God's curses against humanity as he's speaking to the serpent is contained one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. I think you know where I'm going with this. But God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is doing here is He is saying there is a human who is coming to undo the work of the serpent. In fact, He is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And we know that that anticipates who? Jesus. It's awesome. But this wickedness that originates in the garden, sorry, let me tease these out a little bit more. The promise is that an offspring of Eve would bruise the serpent. And that's Jesus who crushes the head of Satan. But this wickedness that originated in the garden here only grows. Right? Not chapters later, we're reading about how God says that he's grieved that he had made mankind, that every intention of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. I mean, these people have just spiraled out of control from what was perfection in the Garden of Eden as an absolute dumpster fire now, as all of mankind is just sinning without abandon. So God sends a flood and Preserves only Noah and his family and after Noah gets off of the ark God makes a promise with him You can see it on the screen there that he would never again flood The whole earth and, and what is the sign of this promise? What guarantee does God give a rainbow? Yeah, and and maybe we could just pause and like and, and just think about that when we see a rainbow after a rainstorm, we shouldn't think oh, that's a really neat scientific phenomenon You know, the the rain creating the spectrum, the sun shining off of it. What should we be thinking? This is evidence of God's promise that though we have just experienced the precursor to a flood and rain coming, God has promised he will never again use a flood to destroy the earth, right? And you say, well, how does this advance the redemptive narrative? Obviously, God hasn't changed his take on sin, he, he still judges it. He's still angry at sinners. The next time we see judgment on sin on this scale, it's going to be God's wrath poured out on Jesus. And, and maybe the, we could say that the Noahic covenant continues the promise made to Adam. God told Adam and Eve, remember, there's an offspring coming who's going to bruise the head of Satan. But if all of humanity is wiped out, then God doesn't really keep that promise, does he? He needs to preserve people so that this offspring of the woman can come. Hence, he continues the promise made to Adam in this, as part of this covenant that he made with Noah. So, there's still a third covenant that God makes in the book of Genesis. This time, it's 400 years after the time of Noah. People have repopulated the earth. They've spread out all over the place after the Tower of Babel, and kind of randomly the story zooms in on one guy that God chose, Abraham. Another unconditional promise that God makes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, for no reason other than that I am gracious, I have chosen you, and I'm going to give you a promise that has three parts to it. First, you and Sarah, who currently have no offspring, are going to be a great nation. You are going to possess a land, a permanent home, and thirdly, and most significantly, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's this last one in particular that is really awesome. We don't have to speculate as to what this blessing might be. The New Testament tells us. Check out this from the book of Galatians. Paul speaking here says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you see what's going on here? Paul is equating this promise that God made to Abraham and you shall all the nations be blessed with the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God through justification by faith. And the implied answer here is, who are these people being justified by faith in? Jesus, again. Paul is saying, what God promised Abraham is a fulfillment of the Gentiles trusting in Jesus. Pretty awesome. Paul isn't done, though. Just a couple of verses later, still in Galatians 3, he's going to make another reference to the Abrahamic covenant, this time to the recipients of the promise. So this one is a little nuanced, admittedly. But God, in talking to Abraham about this promise, is going to use this formula in which he says that this promise, Abraham, is for you and your offspring. This is for you and your offspring. Here's one such example in Genesis twelve seven. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to you to your offspring, I will give this land. You say, what is the significance of that? Seems kind of random. Well, Paul actually, again, this is pretty nuanced. Pay attention here. He latches on to this idea in Galatians chapter 3 and says this Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Who is Christ? Do you guys see that? Paul says, listen, you see this singular usage of offspring in Genesis? It doesn't say offsprings. Plural. It says offspring, talking about one person, Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome, huh? How, how the, all of the scriptures are interconnected. How Paul is able to take something that happened in Genesis and say, this is talking about Jesus. This is fulfilled in him. Pretty cool. I, I will never cease to be amazed by the continuity of the scriptures and just the argumentation that the apostles use in talking about Christ and connecting this Abrahamic covenant to Jesus. How about this? 600 years pass from this covenant with Abraham, and again, we are seeing God's promises to Abraham being ful- ful- fulfilled. Uh, by this time, they'd probably number a couple million strong. They are becoming that great nation. They have just left Egypt. They are on their way to becoming a, or to having a land, rather. And on the way there, they take a little pit stop at Mount Sinai, where God makes a covenant, this time to Moses. Notice that this one is conditional. There are obligations for each party. You can see them there. God promises blessing to Israel with the condition that they keep his law. Sounds pretty awesome. God says, I have this plan for you guys in which you will be a kingdom of priests. You, Israel, are going to be unique among all other nations. Just keep my law. Let me ask you, could they do it? No, they couldn't. And that's a significant part of the redemptive thrust of the Mosaic Covenant is that God never changed his position. God was faithful, and yet mankind, over and over and over again, repeatedly proved, we can't keep this covenant. But there's someone who can. Only Jesus can keep the law. Right? It's Jesus who ushers in a new covenant. And it is here, after these four major covenants of the Old Testament, that we come to the fifth and really final significant covenant in the Old Testament. One that God makes with David and one that also anticipates the coming of Jesus. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. Maybe you can even see right there at the top of the chapter, if it has a header, it says, The Lord's covenant with David. We'll read the first three verses. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, things have been going pretty well for David up to this point. God has pretty much blessed him in everything that he's done, including as verse 1 says, he's given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So it would seem that David doesn't really have these external pressures to worry about. He's not occupied with fighting outside of his realm. And it almost is like he's sitting there. And it hits him one day. Here I am living in this house that Hiram built for me. While the Ark of God dwells in a tent. Seems like there's a real discrepancy there, huh? I'm in a house. The Ark of God in a tent. No, I want to address the obvious here. David doesn't believe that God is somehow confined to the four flaps of the tent, right? David is going to say himself in Psalm 139, I cannot escape God's presence. If I go to the heavens, God's there. If I go to the grave, God's there. Uh, the bottom of the ocean, God is there. He's everywhere. God says of himself that he, you know, is everywhere, fills everything. The apostle Paul is going to say of God that he doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. That's not really the issue. David isn't contradicting god's omnipresence but there is a reality in which the presence of god did dwell over the ark of the covenant uniquely and david is just considering here i am in this palace presumably that is permanent and luxurious and covered in wealth and god is in a tent i i do want to give david the benefit of the doubt and we shouldn't think tent as in like something you go buy at walmart for fifteen dollars and like live in, right? The, the tabernacle was called a tent, the one that Moses made for God. Uh, here's just a picture of it for you. Uh, it, it was pretty ornate, don't get me wrong. It had pillars and wood overlaid with gold, and you can just see this is no, you know, casual tent. I doubt David went cheap on his creation of the tent for the Ark of the Covenant either, but, he, but he's just observing. There, there's a real discrepancy here. And he concludes, you know what? I would like to build God a house too. And I really appreciate David's heart here in recognizing this disparity between his dwelling place and God's. In taking the initiative here, God is going to say later, we'll read it in just a second, that, listen, David, a house has never been my expectation. Uh, Since the time of Egypt, I've lived in a tent and it's served me pretty well. The people of Israel have been nomads. It's allowed me to travel around with them. I haven't had a permanent dwelling because you guys haven't had a permanent dwelling. But David wants to do more. David is doing more than even God has expected or required of him. And I want you to notice God's response to this gesture beginning in verse four. But that same night Why have you not built me a house of cedar? We'll pause there for just a second. God, through the prophet Nathan, asks David a question. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And he goes on to say what I just said, that a house has never been necessary. During the time of the judges, during the time of wandering uh, after Egypt, a house just doesn't really make sense. The people of Israel are moving around. There's no real stability. A tent served God just fine. But the situation is different now. The people of Israel are established. David has a capital city. And we might be inclined to think from 2 Samuel that God is asking David a question like, are you really going to build me a house? That's kind of how the question is phrased here. However, the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles clarifies this. And God isn't asking a question. According to 1 Chronicles 17, A parallel passage we read, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Notice, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Now that has a totally different flavor than 2 Samuel, doesn't it? And we're just kind of like, oh, that's kind of strange. Here David is trying to do from what our perspective seems to be something above and beyond what God has ever expected of anyone, and God says, actually, no, you're not going to build me a house. A- anyone remember why it was that God refused David to build a house Claire? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Notice what a uh, reason God gives in First Chronicles 22. This is David talking. He says, I had it in my heart. Oh, <laughs> there we go. I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on The earth. We're actually going to see some of this next week in the record of 2 Samuel. David, the the battles that he engages in, the number of people that die at the hand of David is astounding. And for that reason, God just says, you know what? It's it's not going to be you. And, And we might be inclined to think that God's refusal of David's gift is really disapproving, right? Because when we refuse a gift, it's like Uh, maybe there's some disapproval that's going on at there, right? We'll receive any gift, even if someone, you know, this morning after kids' Sunday school gives us a a drawing with crayon and it's way outside the lines, we'll say, thank you very much. And, you know, probably just (laughs) put it in the trash later on in the week. But God just says no. You're not going to build me a house, despite your really good intentions. And we might think that this is disapproving on God's part. But thankfully, another parallel passage, First Kings, just clarifies this. And God tells David, listen, whereas it was in your heart to build me a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. And yes, David technically was disqualified by being this man of blood for building the temple. But was God displeased with his heart? Oh, he said, David, you did well. How awesome is that? That even with our intentions, God can be pleased. The things that never actually are acted upon by us, but just the thoughts of our heart can please the Lord. I I find that very encouraging, that even in this refusal, God is very gracious. And he says, David, good job. You did well. And thinking about me here and wanting to go above and beyond what was even my expectation. And so God actually makes what I'll call a counter offer to David. He says, David, you wanted to do something nice for me. I'm going to turn the tables on. you And do something awesome for you. Look at verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is the beginning of the Davidic covenant in which God makes this, what I called just a minute ago, a counteroffer to David and says, you wanted to do something for me? How about I do something awesome for you, David? First of all, you are going to have a great name. Who's a better king than David in our mind's eye? When we reflect back on the kings of Israel, yeah, I know where you're going, Christine, but yeah, from as far as like, the human kings, David's the best. I mean, he has that great name. God promises peace to the nation of Israel. The nation is benefiting from the Davidic covenant. And then at the very end of verse 11, where I stopped reading on purpose, let's finish that sentence. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And in essence, remember what what David had offered to do for God? David wanted to make God a house. And God says, actually, David, I'm going to make you a house. And and we might think, what? David's going to have two houses? Like, I remain in one, that cedar house that he's dwelling in. Does he really need two houses, God? Well, (laughs) Well, that's not exactly what's being talked about here. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, when God speaks about building David a house, he's not talking about hammer, nails, you know, a roof. What is he talking about? Tell me. He's talking about, we might say, a successor. A dynasty? Something that Saul never had, right? Jonathan should have been king after Saul. God says, No, your line is not continuing past you, Saul. But when David is king, God says, I'm gonna make you a house. It is actually a dynasty. And according to verse 13, David's immediate offspring is going to build what Temi said. David's offspring is gonna be the one who builds this house. So the word house gets used interchangeably with offspring and an actual physical house, we might say temple. That is a little confusing. But now that we know that one of David's offspring is going to build the temple, who who is it talking about? Who do we know that builds the temple? Solomon. Yeah, God here is talking about Solomon. And notice the tender words with which God promises he will deal with Solomon in verse 14 I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Uh, again, notice just like, well, let me, let me show you the, the retelling of this promise in 1 Chronicles twenty-eight six. It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father I really just appreciate these tender terms with which God talks about Solomon that father son relationship but this passage of scripture is actually going to be quoted in the new testament turn actually if you will keep your finger here in second samuel turn over to hebrews chapter 1 The immediate fulfillment of this promise is solomon but the new testament authors are going to latch onto this very language and say there is an even greater fulfillment to this promise of father and son look at hebrews 1 verse 5. this is talking about the supremacy of christ it says for to which of the angels did god ever say you are my son today i have begotten you or again i will be to him a Father'?" And he shall be to me a son and if you have a cross reference there it is linked directly to 2nd Samuel chapter 7 talking about this promise that God had made to David which is as Chronicles is careful to say talking about Solomon but the author here of Hebrews says there's something greater going on here this extends even past David and his offspring even further than that, turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If your finger's still there, we're about to be introduced to the greatest fulfillment of this prophecy in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David speaks of this Davidic dynasty continuing Forever. Maybe if I could just reword it or put it slightly differently, a descendant of David is going to rule for all eternity. And for a while in the Old Testament, a descendant of David is on the throne, Solomon, and after him. Rehoboam, And then the kingdom splits, and there is, in Judah, an offspring of David who sits on the throne. And maybe we think that is the fulfillment of this promise. But then Israel is called into captivity, and there's no more kings. So, so there's no one from David that is on this throne until we get to the New Testament. And with the very first verse of the New Testament the author is going to say, remember that promise God made? It's here. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'll put it on the screen for you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see how Matthew was taking great care to introduce Jesus as this offspring of David? Better yet, a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as well. He's an offspring of Abraham too. How awesome is this? Check this out. Gabriel, when talking to Mary, says this. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. We are seeing a fulfillment of what is being written about in 2 Samuel, in Luke. His kingdom has no end. And this continues even until the book of Revelation. When Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 5, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. How about this? I think this is the... Very last chapter, second to last chapter of Revelation, the very last one. Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. This is significant. I hope you see this. God made a promise to David And even in the New Testament, Jesus is taking great care to say, I'm not a descendant of Joseph or any of the other people who, you know, preceded me. I am a descendant of David. Connecting us to this promise that God made that there is an offspring, a descendant who will come and rule forever. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning. What can we conclude about God From this. What what do you guys think? Yeah. God keeps his promises. Do you ever doubt God? Do you ever find yourself wondering if his word is true? Right? Hard things to ask ourselves, hard things to admit to, to be honest. That we might ever just question if God is there, if he knows. If the promises that I listed at the beginning, like him never leaving or forsaking us, really are true. Can I just remind you from this chart? That God, since the beginning of time, made a promise. And I was giving you some time indicators here, you know, from Noah to Abraham was 400 years, Abraham to Moses, 600 years. We're talking thousands of years here through which time passed and God kept that promise. And the fulfillment of that promise met our greatest need in Jesus Christ, in his atoning sacrifice. We should be concluding just by looking at these covenants here. God keeps his word. If we can trust God to keep his word about something as big as this, can we not trust him with the intricacies of our day to day lives and say, God, I trust you. Uh, I can look back at the scriptures and conclude, you know what? You're in control. When you speak, you keep your word. I think this is just pretty awesome. And and notice with me, if you will, that first line seems a little boring, unconditional, 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 right? But what God is doing here is he is blessing mankind in spite of themselves, right? If all of these, obviously the Mosaic covenant is conditional, but if all of these were conditional and man had some obligation to keep this promise with God, how would we be doing in that? Pretty poorly. Anytime we're involved in an equation, we fall short. Uh, we're sinful. We're depraved. We could never keep this agreement with God. And God says over and over and over again I'm making a promise to you guys that requires nothing of you. But I'm good. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I'm slow to anger. Here's blessing unmerited. And the fulfillment of that blessing is going to be the coming of Jesus Christ, that human offspring who will bruise the head of Satan. Pretty awesome stuff, huh? We're still in Second Samuel. We got a little bit more to look at. It's David's prayer of gratitude. We'll just read all of it. Bear with me here, verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. Forever. And I realize that is a lengthy passage of scripture. There's a lot maybe to digest and follow along there, but I want to make one point from David's response to God here. I just want us to notice his humility. Here God is having just promised David this Jesus is coming through. You and David's response in verse eighteen is to ask, "Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He's not sitting in, in his like throne there, patting himself on the back, and saying, "Yeah, I am pretty good, uh you know, I actually had it in my mind when God I promised you know I, I kind of had this idea that if I was going to do something good for you." You might turn it back around and do something good for me. You know, kind of a sneaky, like, this is. I was really in it for myself here. No, 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 no. David is so humble. He says, God, who am I? That you would use me a- and do this for me. He's humble enough to know that this isn't just about him. He'll talk about Israel and the blessings they'll receive in here. David knows he doesn't deserve this. But this is just another instance of unmerited favor from God. And his conclusion about God in verse 21 is pretty awesome. Excuse me, verse 22. He says, therefore, you are great. O Lord God, there is none like you and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. Can I just, you know, challenge you? To, to respond similarly when you receive blessing from God in your life. It, it, it seems that when things are going well, God is like the first to go. We, we kind of treat God as like our emergency response in the midst of trial. Oh, I need you. <laughs> Where are you? But here, this awesome promise has just been made to David and he doesn't turn around. And God who? No, he says, Lord. Thank you so much. You are awesome. You are great. We need to remind ourselves, as James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And when we receive good things, let's be grateful. Everything that we have, everything good that we have originates in God, and he is deserving of our gratitude. So very, very quickly... What should we do with this text? Well, certainly we can appreciate this and what God is doing in the grand narrative of the scriptures and promising the arrival of Christ through Adam to David in the Old Testament. But maybe just a little bit more practically, this all came about because David wanted to do something above and beyond what was expected of him for God, right? He's in his house, looks out, here I am in a tent, in a, in a palace, God's in a tent, And God had never commanded him, David, build me a house. David just says, I see something that could be made better, and I want to do it as an act of worship to God. So let me challenge you. What are some things in our life that we can do as those kinds of acts of worship where we go above and beyond in our desire to just say, Lord, you haven't even asked this of me. I just want to do this. Out of the overflow of my heart. Uh, You know, um, the obvious one is David has all of this wealth and comfort and ease. And he says, God doesn't. What can I do to make him accommodated? Right? So maybe there's some of us who have some of those resources or gifts at our disposal. And we look at other people who who maybe don't have the same privileges that we do. And you say, you know what, Lord? As an act of worship, I don't want to lay up treasure on earth. Uh, I don't want to just hoard, 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 accumulate for myself. Lord, who, who can I use what you have given me as a steward to be a blessing to other people? And, you know, maybe that's a little bit beyond our, you know, budget, if you will. But maybe it's just something as simple as, like, I thought of our meal ministry. Like, how hard is it after a long week of work to go home and make dinner for yourself? Like, Ugh, this is the last thing I want to do. But just to think of someone maybe at our church who is, like, less off than us, Who's busier than us, if that's possible. And say, you know what? A meal would really take a burden off of their shoulders. You know what, Lord? As an act of worship to you, this isn't required of me. Can I just be a blessing to someone else? Not so that I'll be known as the generous person at grace. But just, you know what, Lord? You have given me so much. I want to ease someone else's burden today. And just... Do something kind. I, those are just some of the things I thought about. I'll leave the rest of the application up to you. But I think that heart of David and wanting to do more for God is something that we should certainly possess in our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this uh, just grand thread that is woven throughout the scriptures of the coming of Jesus, we stand in awe that our greatest problem that originated in the garden with sin that is passed down from Adam to all of us. Also in the garden was promised a solution. Jesus is coming. We are here to worship that same Jesus today. We bow the knee of our hearts before you, Lord. Help us to be humble, faithful servants of yours and to know that when you speak, you keep your word. Help us like David to look for ways in which we can just express our gratitude towards you, our worship towards you. Let us be eager to serve you, knowing what you have done for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.